what they used to do in medieval times. They would put a put a, uh, a witness in a bag of rocks, throw throw the witness on the rocks down in the water. The witness came back up. He's telling the truth. Otherwise, if he drowns, <laughs> he's guilty. You got young children, three, four years old, and they're being taught how to lie. Tell them Daddy's not here, or tell them Melvin's not here. You know, lie to the basic inspector, and these kids grow up with that. So you know, they're behind the eight ball before they ever get to school. Even it's a philosophy I hold today. You do not wrap them up in the criminal justice system because all they're going to do is learn how to commit more crimes. They're not going to be rehabilitated. They're not going to. You're just poisoning them. You get one judge as opposed to another judge, and even locally, certain judges have predispositions toward ruling in favor of government, whatever it is. But depending on who you get, you're going to either win or lose that case. Minorities historically will never have anywhere near the adequate peer representation when they are facing trial, either civilly or criminally. From the liberal vantage point, you know, I think that people would say this is a good example of if you provide the opportunity to people, then they will use it wisely and then be successful and so on. Nobody wants to think that you know, and, you know, dirt to dirt, mud to mud, and when I'm gone, that's it. You'd like to be able to say, I can't wait to see my parents. I can't wait to get to the hereafter for whatever reason, right?、Uh, you know, that's why prayer is such comfort if you can. Internalize and believe it, you know. On this week's show, we bring you the fascinating story of Ronald Benjamin, who went from being a teenage outlaw and spending time in prison to eventually passing the bar, becoming attorney at law. It was the guidance of an English teacher at Greenhaven Correctional Facility that pushed for him to attend college, and for Ron, it was the best decision he's ever made. For more than 40 years, he's practiced law in the state of New York as a general practitioner. Advocating tirelessly for his clients, Ron discusses his take on the jury selection as well as the fairness of the justice system. So, without further ado, I bring to you Ronald Benjamin.
Welcome to another edition of American Real. This is Roger Brooks. My special guest today is Ronald Benjamin. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Attorney at law, and uh, you've been practicing now for how long? Over 40 years. Over 40 years. That's wonderful. Long time. <laughs> a lot of cases in that time. Yes, sir. And are you categorized as a defense attorney? Um, general practitioner. Um, at one point, you know, I think it's called Broom Legal West because we represent a lot of people that simply don't get representation in the general will of lawyers, you know, the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Okay. And um, I used to do a lot of criminal, then I got into doing a lot of civil. Lately, we've got a pretty heavy criminal load, so it's a general practitioner. Um, things I don't do are like real estate, things like that. Okay. And over 10 years ago now, we sat down when I put together a book before all this internet <laughs> stuff took off and YouTube, and you shared your story, a little piece of your story in that book, and there are some fascinating pieces to that, and I'm so happy to sit down today because I, I want to go deeper into your story. I think you have a fascinating life, and can you start out, tell us about where you grew up and what your childhood was like. Well, I mean, childhood part is easy. I was spoiled rotten. Um, sort of a lower middle class existence and um, you know basically normal almost and what happened to me was my parents wanted to move up in the world etc so they wanted to move from Manhattan to Queens which is what they did at the time I was in sixth grade um, and, uh, and I was, can't remember exactly, but they had what they called the SP class then. It was a special class that allowed you to go do three years in two. And my, my game plan at that point was I wanted to go to Bronx Science. And it's sort of a goody two-shoes. Um, when we get to Queens, the uh, board of education, I don't know who, somebody in the school, could have been just a principal, but said, you're not going to SP, you're going to go into a regular seventh grade class. And, you know, I said, I'm not. My parents thought I was kidding or whatever they thought, but, you know, Ronnie, you have to go to school. I said, I do not. And I said, I'm not going back. And I didn't. Um, and that's where I started on from being a normal kind of kid to not going to school and the first few months or up to a year maybe, truant officer would, you know, come around looking and, you know, I'd be hiding in the bushes and throwing rocks at him. So that finally stopped and they called up my parents and they said, either you get him to school or you put, we're going to put him in a reform school. My father said, you try that, I'll put him in a yeshiva and I went back and forth like that uh, for a few years. Um, and then, so I was out of school for quite a while. Ended up at the racetrack, because it, you know, it was hard to get a job with no license, no working papers, nothing, right? So I ended up um, at the racetrack walking horses and then riding them as an exercise boy and uh, got into gambling as well. So I was going through a lot of money. 
And are you a teenager, teenager at this point? Right, 15, 16, 17. Um, and by the time I was 17 or 18, maybe, I had my own little crime spree going. I was out on bail in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, and Westchester County. And Westchester County was very interesting. I had never been in Westchester County, but I had promised to cooperate with police in Manhattan for one of the arrests that was going on there. When it came time to cooperate, I said no. So they literally took me out to Bron uh, Westchester County, took me into some department store, put me in front of a cashier, said, is this the guy that passed the check? They said yes. So um, I had all of those charges pending, and they all got wrapped up, and they had to bring me back to Westchester to you know, get a concurrent sentence, right? And by then I was at Sing Sing. So when I got to the Westchester jail, which was in Valhalla, it was like a country club, right? So I told one of the COs that I was an illegal alien, and then they called immigration. So I screwed things up there, so I ended up staying there for months when I should have just been there over the weekend. Went back to Sing Sing, and um, from Sing Sing, I went to Attica because of shenanigans I was doing at Sing Sing. From Attica, my family put up a major bitch. So they brought me back down to Greenhaven. And from Greenhaven, there was an English teacher that helped me out in terms of making an application to SUNY Binghamton. You know, when I tried to do it like sort of a legitimate way, you know, like with the parole board, you know, they said, you know, why should we parole you? You're just going to be a smart crook. You know, so they weren't in favor of my getting into Binghamton or going to college at all. So I did get in with the help of this English teacher, and that's the short version of how I got here. Wow. But what was the crime? <laughs> what, were, what was the scheme? What were you doing? Uh, almost everything. Nothing real violent. Um, Manhattan, I was using, getting credit cards from prostitutes. Back then, it would take them 10 days to get basically on the list. So for eight days, you knew you were pretty safe using the card. So doing that, the crime that I got the four years for were uh, I sold two racehorses. I sold one racehorse that didn't exist, and then... Wait, you sold a racehorse that didn't exist? Correct. In other words, I made up the name of a horse papers and all of this. I took a Blue Cross insurance policy, substituted language, and then at the bottom put in a clause about swamp fever so it made it look like it was for animals. And then sold it to this person that I ran into at the track and then started billing him you know, for keeping the stable and all, all that kind of stuff. We called the course New Country of all things. Right? But in any event, uh, by the time it was done, the DA's office went nuts. Um, and the way they arrested me, they wanted him to set me up, you know, to just continue like we're doing our thing, right? So we're in a car, and all of a sudden I see twisting his right pocket. And I said, they're recording this. So I turned to him and I said, look, I don't know what you're telling your wife you're doing with this money, but look, don't blame me for it, right? When that happens, about six cars come and they pull up, you know, two in front, two, and a million cops with guns and all of that. And I had, you know, I never had a weapon. So that was a big arrest. Um, and then uh, that, by the time I was done, was immature into a four-year prison sentence.
And how old are you now at this point? Seven, eight, 17 or 18. Okay. So that was when I was a while back. And is that the time? So after that day, did you, did you go to prison? Ultimately, yeah. I mean, I was still, I was out on bail for that for a while, and then I got rearrested a few more times. By the time I finished all of that, there were six different charges. Not charges. Bronx alone was 115 counts of grand larceny and about 25 forgeries. I mean, DA took everything I signed and made it a charge. So they overcharged me like ridiculous. But ultimately, um, it was April Fool's Day that I entered Sing Sing. And um, I think that was 68. Unbelievable. So. And how long did you spend? Um, Around three years. I lost good time for some of the stuff that, you know, I wasn't a model prisoner, but... So were you, were you a, a bad kid, like a troublemaker? Would you call yourself a troublemaker, and were you acting alone? Um, most of the time, everything was alone, you know, with me. Um, I never did any gang stuff or anything like that. And I don't know what you call trouble, man. I was stealing, you know, I was pushed, more of a con man. Like, when I was inside, and I was selling high school diplomas that didn't exist to other inmates, I told them, look, I know somebody in Albany. I would pick people that I thought could pass the test. I said, you just take it, and I'll guarantee you passing grade, and you get six cartons of cigarettes, and you know, nonsense like that. So. But you were being smart about everything you were doing. You were trying to figure out how to, how to beat the system. Sort of. I mean, you know, didn't have a lot of options there. Right. So, but, you know, after I um, got out, I, you know, I was really lucky to get into SUNY. And, um, you know, from, from then on, it's just been a roll, so to speak. So I have to ask you, the system itself, would they look at your case or your life as the ultimate success story? of someone who, who was arrested, spent time in prison, gets into a university, passes the bar, and then becomes a very successful attorney? Well, I mean, I think it really would depend on, you know, whether you are conservative or liberal. Um, you know, you can see some people saying, this guy got a free ride, he belongs in jail, he shouldn't have been allowed to practice law in the first place, and now he's just an ambulance chaser, you know? Um, from the liberal vantage point, you know, I think that people would say this is a good example of if you provide the opportunity to people, then they will use it wisely and then be successful and so on. Um, so what do you have to say about second chances, Ron? Well, I mean, I don't like, I started a group called Probe, which was just for ex-offenders. It was an agency designed to do just that. When I was in college, it started, and then it went on for quite a while. My, it's a philosophy I hold today, is that when you have young people doing one or another thing wrong, you do not wrap them up in the criminal justice system because all they're going to do is learn how to commit more crime. They're not going to be rehabilitated. They're not going to be, you're just poisoning them. So the agency, when I ran it, was aimed at hardcore felons, three-time losers, you know, people in their 20s and up. And I was always advocating for first offenders 
to keep them out of the criminal justice system all completely. So, I mean, I think that... To give them a better chance, right? Yeah, that's right. Not to wrap them up in that system that, you know, it's, everything is manipulative. And, you know, with welfare, like one of the things that used to drive me, still drives me nuts, where it, it, there used to be a man in a house rule, and women that were on public assistance that were having relationships with men, I mean, it was normal. Um, they would, and welfare inspectors would come around from time to time knocking on the door. You got young children, three, four years old, and they're being taught how to lie. Tell them daddy's not here, or tell them Melvin's not here. You know, lie to the basic inspector. And these kids grow up with that. So, you know, they're, they're behind the eight ball before they ever get to school, even. Um, so, you know, a lot of systemic issues that really need to be dealt with. And, uh, you know, prison is a revolving door for a lot of those people. So you come to SUNY Binghamton at the time. Mm -hmm. And you enter as a freshman? Yeah. Okay. And tell us what happens from there. How, how, do you, how do you get to the point where you say, okay, I'm going to become an attorney? Well, when I came to, I mean, I had culture shock, put it mildly. Everybody's running around and dungarees and all this other stuff. And it's so informal, it was really a surprise. And I ended up doing well in school. I mean, you know, I hadn't gone to high school, so that this was like a jump from basic nothing to college. And um, that first semester, um, at the end of it, I wanted to do, I wrote a, wrote a letter to the editor. I wanted to be a letter to the editor about prison reform and trying to get other people breaks and so on. It's, the pipe dream turned into a front page article and then I got, you know, a ton of student responses. And that's how the agency probe started. Harris Thompson was the director of Urban League. And John Benson was director of the special admissions program that I came through. Those three guys, you know, kind of took me under their wing in terms of how to run an agency and get staff, get funding, do this, do that. And um, by the end of the second semester, I got in the Department of Labor to give us office space. I got Unitarian Church, graduate student government, and the Office of Economic Opportunity to give us grants. So we actually had a little staff, and then I would like try to guerrilla IBM, say, if you don't hire so many you know, ex-cons, then we're gonna make it look like you know, you're doing things improperly. So they got into the act, a few other places, uh, and, you know, so we were actually getting jobs for people and doing things here and there. And I, I can't help but think you were now, now you're using your street smarts <laughs> to your advantage for your, this, this agency that you started. Right. Wow. And, put, and it sounds like you're putting together things that probably never happened or typically didn't exist as far as a college kid being able to, to put an agency together and have a staff. Well, when... It was sort of rare, you know. I mean, I think that these things just all came together. And, uh, you know, it worked out all right. I mean, there were a lot of failures, too. A lot of people just used this. And, you know, I mean, my thing, look, you use me all the hell you want. You're the one going back to jail, not me. So you either carry a lunch bucket or you plan on, you know, making a right, you know, round trip back to prison. Does that agency exist today? No. I th actually, it's only the last... Two years, I don't know, a couple of years ago, um, they decided to, 
make it a subordinate part of either OFB or somewhere else. I don't remember exactly. But technically, it lost its identity. So it's, so it's gone on for a while. But it got, you know, the way it ultimately ended up existing for years and years was day and night difference from what I wanted. Uh, it ended up, they hired, first they hired some guy named Pete or somebody, an idiot. He had some scream therapy, which may or may not work. But I actually was in law school by then. I came back here. Frank Barish, who's the president of Visions for whatever, he was on the board. He was the chair at that time. And um, basically, I said, you can't keep this guy. And said, they told me, you don't run this place anymore. I said, yes, I do. And blah, blah. The whole board resigned, except for Frank. We put together a new board. And then they ended up hiring this woman called Pearl Mall, who came out of Macy's as some kind of executive, whatever. And she just wanted to work with first offenders. I said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, either I'm going to quit law school, come back here, or I'm kissing it. And that's what I did. I never looked back. I just stayed in law school. And Probe ended up serving a clientele that, from my vantage point, never should have been into the, in the criminal justice system in the first place. Okay. And it was. It sounds like it definitely wasn't even close to your original no. plan. That's right. So where did you go to law school? Buffalo. And, uh, you know, that was sort of normal, you know, get used to, I mean, I was working, cause I didn't have any resources from anywhere. Uh, I was working with an agency that worked with ex-cons in Buffalo, um, and then um, passed the bar, then had a scrabble with the appellate division. In fact, the character committee split on me. You know, they asked me, you know, are you willing to make restitution for all the money that you got, you know, that you've stolen? I said, absolutely. You give me back my four years, I'll give you all the money back I took. And if I pissed a few of them off, they split down the middle, and it was, um, I had to go to the appellate division. And then the appellate division admitted me, and, uh, I started practicing law, and, um, and I know I pissed off a lot of so-called community whatever because it was a matter of a year or two. I got suspended for six months. And, you know, if you read the suspension, you look at it and you look at what other people do, you're going to say, what the hell is this? And the appellate division, you know, said I was abusing my authority as an attorney. And I think what did, you know, what led them to that conclusion was this real estate agent um, was ripping off newspaper boys. He, he went through three, four of these kids. They delivered the paper, and he just wouldn't pay them. So they came to me. I ended up suing him, and I asked for a million, three million dollars, $1.3 million in punitive damages, and the appellate division said, that's abusing your authority as an attorney, and blah, blah, blah. That was the gist of it. So they suspended you. So I got hit with a six months of suspension then. And um, beyond that, you know, I have, I've been hit with ethics complaints with more than anybody else anywhere as far as I'm concerned. And what I think the reason for that is community that I serve, so to speak, that I work with hard, you know, Mothers had their children taken away. You know, minority issues from left, right, and sideways. 
And what will happen is if you don't get a result favorable, they don't have anybody to strike out with except me. So you get these complaints. And um, so, you know, it happens. And there wasn't anything, sometimes it censured, sometimes it dismissed. Um, and I don't practice what I call candy-ass law, like some doctors practice candy-ass medicine. Test everybody so you can't get sued and all that. I don't do that crap. And more times than not, especially with some of the civil rights litigation, I will know in advance that the law is not what I'm saying it is. And then when I run into these judges, right, um, that say, where is it? And I said, look, you know, we our principles are stare decisive. We're supposed to develop the law. Here are the facts. There should be this law. And sometimes we get a little bit, sometimes we don't. And I remember one time in front of Judge McKern making an argument on education, constitutional argument, right? And I'm trying to argue expanding the Constitution. There has to be enough elasticity for you to bring this into play, right? And he looks dead at me and he says, the Constitution is not a rubber band, Mr. Benjamin. And go back to your you know, drawing board. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I've run into just doing the civil rights. So I would like to talk about some of your cases, but before we do that, was there a moment that you remember where, where things turned around for you? So back, you know, you, you got into trouble, you went into jail, you get the opportunity, but what was that? Was there an aha moment that you said, I don't want to do that anymore, I want to become an attorney? No. How did, I, it, how did it unfold? I mean, the attorney part was more, the lesson I thought I took with me from probe was you're not going to make systemic change here. And, you know, you, you can do a lot more, I thought, you know, as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore I went to law school instead of kind of staying in that area. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at these moral decisions, so to speak, you know, in other words, did at some point did the light go off and say, look, you've got to become an honest, law-abiding citizen? The answer there is no. I think that the, the issues were always, you know, at some level as a pendulum, you know, over here is perfectly moral, over here is completely corrupt. But to do the analysis the correct way, you've got to look at who's writing these laws. So when I'm sitting there looking at laws written by landlords and I'm representing tenants, those laws, as far as I'm concerned, are totally unjust. Because they're skewed. Exactly. So that, you know, it was never, you know, this majesty of the law it was more a practical, functional. If I didn't get into college, I'd still be out stealing and doing it quite well, so to speak. And one of the interesting things that, you know, I thought about when I was in college and the way the system was working. And, and you probably could still do it now. You could literally create a city, create a population, and then just apply for federal grants, bring those federal grants back into some, you know, baloney bin, and rip off millions of dollars. That's how screwed up the system is in a lot of ways. Does that concern you? They can't see the forest for the trees, but you know, what concerns me, you know, is right now, instead of running the country, instead of figuring out how to, A, on the domestic side, come up with some equity, create some opportunity, create some jobs, 
get industry back here. We're running around with a lot of theatrical nonsense about impeachment. Hearings held, everybody grandstands, those then get put into some bin, never to be seen again. And that's a ton of money, ton of resources, going into absolutely nothing. So that concerns me more than, you know, you know, I suppose $600 toilet seats and stuff like that from the Defense Department. You always have those boondoggles. But, you know, I'm wasting an awful lot of time and energy on nothing. What's your take while we're talking about that? What's your take on what's going to happen here with the impeachment of the president? Well, I think the problem is Democrats know as soon as they stop and they impeach, the stage goes to the Republicans. So I think they're going to keep horsing around with this for as many months as they can get away with. Republicans right now don't appear willing to take Trump on. So it doesn't matter if they impeach him or not, he's going to walk. Um, so it, it's just a big boondoggle. And a lot of wasted time, resources, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now, now you're practicing. Uh, you come back to Binghamton, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Did you open your practice here? Right. Yeah. Okay. And why? Because you had a good experience at the school? Well, no, because I knew from my probe involvement, I got a fair amount of publicity just for some of the things we did then, like at one point, social services would not, or rather the jail would not recognize, social services would not recognize the jail as an address, which means you could not apply, you, could, you walked out with nothing. Mm. So we demonstrated in front of social services, shut them down literally, it worked out some deal there. Um, you know, back then it was that kind of thing, more functional towards jobs, towards things like that. But uh, and the other thing was they were trying to defund OFB, Opportunities for Broom, for not following federal regs. So I saw that the federals were not following their own regs. So I represented OFB, we got them funded again. And, you know, between all of the press like that, when I came back set up, it was amazing because I opened up in September of 79 and by December I made like $40,000 which to me was like a mountain of money. I said, what the hell, how, you know, it's a pretty good deal here, right? And I was doing things for people that, uh, you know, stopping evictions, things like that. Making a difference. So doing that and making money. So that, uh, you know, worked out. The idea to come here starting, and uh, that went on for about 10 years, doing really nicely. And then um, a case came along from a drug called diethylstilbestrol. Took me months to figure out how to pronounce it. It's called DES, and it was a drug that they used in the 40s and 50s. These researchers from Smith, uh, Harvard, Smith and Smith, came in with the theory that it prevented pre uh, pregnancy. So the drug companies, what DES was synthesized estrogen. The drug companies were falling all over themselves because the guy that invented them, Mr. Dodd, did not patent it because he wanted to be used widespread because he thought it would be doing well, good for the world. So they're running around promoting this drug like crazy and they end up pushing doctors. So everybody's using DES. And it turns out that it was the first transplacental 
carcinogen, crossed the placenta, and it basically injured the reproductive tract of the babies, of the mothers that were taking the drug. So I get a woman from Oigo who had a vaginal cancer because of it, and by then, the big New York City firms were fighting the drug companies in uh, Manhattan over how it was going to go, and it was sort of at a stalemate. And I came down and said, I want a trial, I want a trial, right? And I'm positive the drug company said, look, we'll take this bare ass idiot from Binghamton, take him, beat the case, show everybody you're not going to win. Set precedent. Exactly. So that's what we did. And uh, except they lost, they, we got twelve and a half million bucks, wow. and it turned you know, turned things around with the DES world. And you know, my practice that I got ended up suing pharmaceuticals for years and doing pretty good doing that. Um, and I was still doing civil rights, but it was you know not at the top of the list, so to speak. And that brings up Fenfen. Fenfen, that was another boondoggle with. Uh, Drugs supposedly causing loss of weight. Instead, it caused heart attacks, and um, they got pulled from the market, and then we were litigating again with the drug companies about damages and so on. And this was what, back in the 90s? Yeah. Okay. Because I recall, if I remember correctly, that you were either on the cover or... or uh, somewhere within the Wall Street Journal yeah. uh, for that case. Is that right? Well, it was, um, it was one of the things. I think that there was the combination of doing that and coming out of jail, whatever. They thought, you know, it was a unique guy, so they did a front-page article on it. And, Ron, back then, uh, do you think those cases, the ones you were involved with and other attorneys, has that helped the consumer in any way today from what, pharmaceuticals are putting out, or do you still see some of the, the same problems that, that happened back then continue? I mean, it's an interesting question, and it's not a, it's a little more complicated than what, you know, it's easy to go out and say that drug companies are bandits and all that. I mean, they make money like anybody else. Um, what, what's the, the problem is, you know, that with, no matter what drug you come up with, until it really hits the marketplace and you get a large enough population, so to speak, you're not going to really know because you, you don't, you do these clinical trials and they're rarely going to give you statistical significance on causation. Now, you know, these, they like to gamble a little bit and they'll say, we well, you know that this drug will promote this issue, but then the side effects aren't really considered and they, you know, you look at all these commercials today. They warn you about everything from a toenail loss to horrible death, and that's to avoid liability. Um, but the practical side that they face is no matter how good the drug is and how much time goes into it, a clinical trial is not going to be sufficiently large to give you the kind of data you need. And so you got that on the one hand. The other hand, it's unethical to withhold the drug from people that you know could benefit so that just is going to go round and round. Um, the real, probably the best way to have a fair system is to take it out of the legal system, put it into an administrative system that says, if ultimately we find that this drug causes this damage, 
then you will be entitled to so much and they'll put together some kind of impartial board that develops some mechanism. But, you know, that's not going to happen because neither side's going to give in. Um, but, you know, it's an ongoing thing and I don't know that anything we did in the 90s changed it. I think that, um, you know, the plaintiff side had their share of corruption where, you know, you just throw everybody in there no matter what. You know, you got a twinkle of a dust and bingo, you got an injury, you know. So that's, that's that. <laughs> Ron, what about tobacco companies? I, I just, I don't know. I never smoked. I understand to people smoke. It's a habit. I know you, you smoked and quit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just can't wrap my brain around how this is legal. When we know, and I know it's a tough subject, people don't like to talk about it mm -hmm. because tobacco's so big mm -hmm. and they have so much power. But I just, from a health reason, I mean, I guess I should ask you this question. In a hundred years from now, will tobacco exist? Well, you know, a hundred years from now, they may have a tobacco that is healthy and is going to be prescribed for various kinds of illnesses. So, you know, I mean, the real issue there is, I mean, there's a number of issues, one of which is, you know, you've gotten warnings from here to the end of the time that this is not good for your health, so why are you smoking in the first place? But, you know, it's, tobacco companies have made this part of your culture, you know, from the shirt pockets that they promote and make sure that are on every shirt in the country to, you know, the Marlboro Man and on and on and on. Um, you know, I mean, I sued back in, uh, must have been 20 years, maybe more, I sued the tobacco companies. And um, I remember for a case I had one guy, there was a room full of lawyers, 20, 30 lawyers came up and that's what they do to you. They, they just gorilla you. And then they made motions, and Judge McAvoy dismissed my tobacco case on the grounds that it wasn't a product, it was uh, agriculture, and therefore you couldn't bring a product liability claim. Now, that's been overruled since then. But, you know, the tobacco companies, like now, look at the opioid crisis. This is the, the opioid crisis is where the tobacco companies ended up, you know, 20 years ago, and then ultimately they've been settling cases left, right, and sideways. And it's the same thing with the opioid crisis. Um, and, you know, there's always two sides to every issue, and there's always going to be some harm emanating from some product, and then you're going to balance these different interests and end up uh, with situations. I mean, they take pajamas that are so flammable that they can't be sold in the United States, they don't junk the product, they go take it and sell it overseas. So, you know, everybody's chasing a dollar, so yeah. to speak. I heard that you once used uh, Skittles or, or M&Ms or something as an exhibit. Is that Correct. accurate? Yes. Tell us about that. That was uh, the DES case where I got the $12 million. Um, the attorney for, the, uh, for Eli Lilly to show the lily pill, okay? It was a red pill and it was the size of M&M, right? And so they open it in front of the jury with a big box 
and they unravel the box and there's a certificate, all that nonsense, right? So after he does that in front of the jury, you know, I open up, it was an M&M actually, an M&M same size and it said, this is what that is worth and this is what it does and so on. But, I mean, the funnier part in that case was um, they hired an epidemiologist from Yale to come in and talk about how statistics, we were not able to show a statistical significance between Lily's pill and the um, onset of the vaginal cancer. And this guy was just blowing out smoke, numbers, just ridiculous, right? So, you know, there's no way if I'm going to go toe-to-toe with him on these numbers, he's going to get anything but confusion, right? So I said to him, Doctor, now I'd like you to tell the jury about the LL formula. And you know, he goes like one of those, right? He knows, he thinks he's supposed to know the LL formula, right? And uh, Mr. Benjamin, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you're referring to. I said, come on, you know what the LL formula is. Everybody on the jury's going to know it, what? And I asked Mr. Benjamin, what is the LL formula? I said, Lily loses. The judge had to turn, turn his chair from the jury. And I mean, that was, if you want to talk about a moment in the case, that was it. Um, That's priceless. <laughs> so sometimes when you're up there, and I've, I've actually gone in to, to watch you, um, some of your trials, because it's, it's, it's insightful. Um, but it's almost, it's, it's theatrical in some it's ways. Theater. It's right. How do you prepare, Ron? Well, look, ask yourself this. How are you going to take strangers, a jury stranger, a judge, your lawyer, and the plaintiff who suffered some kind of injury or committed, probably committed some kind of crime, how are you going to cram all the information, particularly in a complicated case, how are you going to get that done in it? The witness is up there for an hour, three hours, five hours, whatever. Uh, there has to be some theater to it. You have to find some sort of a sound bite. You have to have a theme. And they don't teach you that in law school. No, they don't. <laughs> they should. <laughs> so is that experience? I think so. I mean, now, you know, I can tell when a criminal case comes in the door, I can tell after the initial interview what my closing argument is going to be just about. Because you can see, you know, you see them one, see them all, and there are different variables that come into play. Um, but, you know, our system is not, you know, the theory behind our system is that cross-examination is a crucible out of which the truth will emerge. But the fact of the matter is, you know, people are not trained actors and they'll either be scared or there'll be something you can get and impeach them with. They'll have nothing to do with the case, but you crush their testimony, which otherwise could have been valuable, you know. So it's a theory that says the adversarial system will bring out the truth, but we have all kinds of rules, like hearsay, that are designed to submerge the truth and put other interests above. Whereas in the inquisitorial system, the attorney for the client has an obligation, if he knows the client's guilty, bring that before the court. Now, the problem with that system is it's subjected to abuse so that the government can come in and just lock you up for no reason and keep you locked up. Well, I mean, look, we're talking about these kind of rules. What they used to do in medieval times, 
they would put a put a, uh, a witness in a bag of rocks, throw throw the witness on the rocks down in the water. The witness came back up. He's telling the truth. Otherwise, if he drowns, <laughs> he's guilty. So I mean, so you know, we're at least better than that. We're improving <laughs> as a human race. Can you talk about any disappointing cases that you've had? Well, I mean, sure. I think that um, one that comes to mind was a correctional officer that turned in other officers for beating an inmate. Um, and then they, they went after him big time. They, you know, he'd open his locker and, you know, there'd be a rat in there. Uh, they have these sally port doors where, you know, you lock on both sides, lock them in there. Just made his life miserable to the point where he couldn't work. Um, that was clearly a legitimate case that we would have gotten this guy a lot of money to compensate him for when he went through. So while this case is waiting for trial, the United States Supreme Court comes down with this Garicelli case, and it basically says that as a public servant, if you have a public employer. You really don't have any First Amendment rights, and therefore, the you can't no retaliation. You cannot get the government can't sue them. Blah blah blah. So we had that case had to be lost. So that one, uh, Tough. you know, that was a very disappointing case. Um, it just seems like the rules in, of engagement change. That's a great example. Um, I mean, is that? Now precedent, right? Yeah, <laughs> you got to live with that one, right? And um, you know, the system, in many ways, trial is a crapshoot because you get one judge as opposed to another judge, and even locally, certain judges have predispositions toward ruling in favor of government, uh, whatever it is. But depending on who you get, you're going to either win or lose that case, depending on the kind of case it is. Do you typically know that going into it? Um, Do you have a good idea? Or well, no, you, I mean, it's a random assignment ah. system. So you get, after you get the case, uh, rather, once you file the case and then you get the judge, well, then, you know, you got to sort of shift your strategy to accommodate the, that judge's particular bent. Um, I mean, that's what Trump's going to have an impact no matter what happens in the next two years. He's appointed more federal judges than uh, shake a stick at I mean, And what you're going to see is a shift. There's uh, a doctrine called uh, right versus privilege. And historically, oh, since the 50s, 60s, things have moved in favor of the have-nots, so to speak. Prisoners have been allowed to have a right to get good time, welfare recipients have a right to get a certain amount of public assistance and so on. Uh, you're going to see that shift and you're going to see it erode. And we're going to go back to the old, it's a privilege, not a right, and therefore we will leave it to the discretion of the particular agency. And um, you know, I think you're going to see an erosion of a lot of the rights that have been granted, so to speak, by the courts that have been running for the last 50 years. Mm. 
Why do you advocate so hard for your clients? Well, I mean, easy way to win it to win it. I mean, I I think that um, that that's part of the process. I mean, uh, I've never been nine to five, regardless. Um, and you know, most or a lot of the clients that I end up in those situations with are clients that don't have anywhere else to go, literally. So you know, I just I just do. And. What's a typical day for, like, for you? Um, do you have a dozen cases going on at once? I know you have a trial you mentioned this week. Um, is that, are you clearly focused on that, or do you have to answer questions on other things that are happening? What's, I would just love a sense of what your life is like day to day. Well, I mean, the trials are not that often. They will be, they may take up um, a quarter of the year. So the rest of it's filtering out cases. You know, I get a lot of calls from, you know, all over the place. Um, and somehow I'll give you an example of a whack ball scenario where I have two ladies come in, nice, you know, elderly, whatever. They claim the federal government, the post office, and the FBI are all trailing them, and they want to nail them and this and that. And uh, so I'm trying to be courteous. All right, ladies, but look, you know, you just can't sue everybody in the government. You have to have certain things to do. And every example, you know, you have to do, show that this was done to you. That, that was done to me. Uh, so I finally said, look, I need a $10,000 retainer or else I'm not going to be able to sit. Out comes a checkbook, okay? So when the checkbook came out, I got up, I walked out to my secretary. I said, Kathy, they're yours. Get them the hell out of here somehow. I'm going. So I left. Wow. Um, you will get people that are delusional or whatever. So you get some of that. Um, I've got one woman that's been calling me for 25 years, 20 years. And, you know, just, Ron, it's my, I got this, you know. But it's, you know, generally a lot of it is the prep work. If you don't really prep, you know, because you don't know how certain, let's say you got eight different possibilities that could happen. If you don't prepare for them, you're going to get nailed. So in many ways, it's like an NFL coach, right? Yeah, exactly. You have to be ready for all these scenarios. That's right. That's right. No matter what play is thrown at you. That's right. How to defend, how to react. Yeah, if you don't, you can't be a trial lawyer. I mean, in my view, I mean, you know. And I think most trial lawyers are like that. One of my issues locally, and it's mirrored throughout much of the United States, is that minorities historically will never have anywhere near the adequate peer representation when they are facing trial, either civilly or criminally. And you know, I have you know often gone to trial locally in criminal cases, black defendants. You look back and you got nothing but a sea of white jurors. And you know they think they just feel like they're cooked before they start the, before they even start, and, and it's an issue. Why does that happen? Well, primarily, um, well, in our area, there's only a minor minority representation in the first place. But the voter registration lists of where we where we get our jurors from, for the most part, and so I think it's got to be a combination of having our commissioner of jurors 
look to other sources of voter registration, which I would I would hope churches could be one of those. Mm. Um, and then the other side of that would be to get minorities to register to vote so that they're on those lists that are being used. And you know, that combination would hopefully then get us a better group of jurors in terms of we really, when we say peer representation, it really will be peer representation, not white peer representation. Right. Do you think it's the same in larger cities? Um, Take Philadelphia, for example, or New York. Well, <clears throat> I've tried a few cases in Manhattan, and it's been the same there. Well, you, know, um, you have a little better chance of getting black jurors in Manhattan. But... Um, I mean, it's a, it's a national problem, particularly for some areas. Mm. So that just, what does it do to the chances of that, of your client? I mean, I, mean I think that to the extent you're going to get some juries that harbor prejudice, whether it's, you know, they never work, they don't get up in the morning, they're on welfare, blah, 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 whatever it is. It's there, and it obviously manifests itself in, instead of having a presumption of innocence, you got a presumption of guilt, you know? Hmm. A difficult problem. What's next for Ron Benjamin? Well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. You, know? you love it. I do. <laughs> I ask a lot of the guests this, because I just like to know from different perspectives. Um, What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? What's our mission? Well, I mean, that's a fair enough question. We're going to get any answers to it. Um, because really, you know, it's a blink. Your life, my life is going to be a blink. It's going to go out. So, you know, sometimes you think, well, you know, maybe there is no purpose. You just go become like every animal out there. And you just move on and you know, don't ask any questions. And it's one of the things that drove me from religion when you know I asked my rabbi about you know if if there's really a God, how could that God let so many miserable things happen to people, and why do all these bad people get away with all these things? And you know the answer I got was God works in mysterious ways, <laughs> and that didn't do it for me. Yeah. But if you think about the, the bigger picture, uh, you know, you're right. We're, we're here for such a short period of time. Life has been going on for, for millions of years. Who knows how far into the future. But don't you feel there's, there's something out there that connects us? I mean, you've had these moments, I'm sure, where you're thinking of someone and, and they call you on the phone or... Oh, that was a coincidence. Or uh, don't you feel like there's a connection somewhere with, with people in general of, of all races, religions, cultures? I would like to feel that, okay? But I'm sort of too pragmatic, you know, in terms of is it, you know, is there some scheme? And then does that mean that I'm going to be programmed to play this role no matter what, almost like predestination? Or is there a field out there where you gotta 
make your own rules, make your own luck, and just wherever it lands, it lands. And under that theory, try to do the best you can. Um, you know, I mean, that's really the logic question. Ideally, sure. It, nobody wants to think that, you know, and, you know, dirt to dirt, mud to mud, and when I'm gone, that's it. You'd like to be able to say, I can't wait to see my parents, I can't wait to get to the hereafter for whatever reason, right? Uh, you know, that's why prayer is such comfort. If you can internalize and believe it, you know, um, makes life a lot easier to kind of look at the end, I'm going to be somewhere else. But, you know, I don't buy that. And it sounds like you've been playing by your own rules since you were <laughs> seven, <laughs> right? Or younger. Well, you've, you've, you've created this, you, you've, you've kind of figured things out, how to survive, how to thrive, how to help people. I mean, you're doing a lot. How many trials, how many cases do you represent a year, or people do you represent a year? Dozens, dozens? No, hundreds, 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 at least. You know, sometimes, you know, you get somebody on the right track, you're just giving them the right advice, and send them on their way, and they do, will avoid a lot of pitfalls that otherwise they wouldn't, so. Any advice for up-and-coming up and coming attorneys, thinking about this as a career, um, what would you tell them? Well, I mean, I think that if they're up-and-coming attorneys, they're going to do okay regardless of where they fall. But I think that, you know, with, you know, being an officer of the court, if you would, and there's a lot of responsibility, there's a lot of ability to influence lives, and, you know, I would always hope that you work toward improving the community that you're in, basically. And if you were to take out your cell phone right now and call the 15-year-old Ron, mm -hmm. would you give him any advice? It would depend on what those, you know, the 15-year-old is going to have issues, okay? And it will depend on what those issues are, what you have to work through, you know, if you're struggling, if you're being bullied, you know, if you're having issues about your own identity. And, you know, I think I try to tailor my advice to moving that person in a way that look at the reality, look at your own internal components, you're going to be able to cope with this and this is how you're going to do it. And you got to get up, you get knocked down one time, you got to get back up, you know, don't let them knock you out like that. And Ron, one last question. First of all, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's fascinating. I believe people are going to really take to this episode because you are so real and that's why we named the show American Real. It's, it's real stories. I mean, and this is what I love to have a deeper conversation with people so they could share some of the wisdom that they've, they've had or, or lessons that they've learned over the years. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, but one last question and that is, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, you know, I think that I would just like to be remembered as trying to do something the right way. But it. Ron Benjamin, thank you so much. Welcome to the American Real family. Thank you.